Return to the ASC has been made possible with support from Johnson & Johnson Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsor for their support of this programming. Ambulatory surgical centers have been forced to adapt during the COVID-19 pandemic. In this program, we'll hear from Regina Bohr, Senior Vice President of Progressive Surgical Solutions, Albert Castillo, CEO of San Antonio Eye Center, and Todd Alberts, Vice President of Surgical and Specialty Services at Cincinnati Eye on the ever-changing safety guidelines, staff considerations, product uses, and more. And now, here's our host. I'm CEO of Load and Vision Center, President of Load and Vision Center, and we want to really thank J&J Vision for sponsoring us tonight on this, but we've got some great faculty here, and I'm going to really turn the conversation over to them. I'm a managing partner of an ASC, but uh, Albert's manager of one ASC is in the process of opening a second 22-doctor practice. Regina has operated her consulting business on ASCs in the United States, Canada, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico. Albert, uh, I mean, uh, Todd is with CVP and he has 99 surgeons and I think 22 ASCs. So we've got a great experienced crowd here. So Regina, we're gonna start with you tonight and we're gonna talk about ever-changing guidelines. With your nursing background, you're really experienced in these guidelines. So kind of take it away right now and help us through the new guidelines in this post-COVID-19 reopening. Sure. Well, I think most of the changes now, I mean, there was a time in April where it seemed like it wasn't just weekly or daily, but it was practically hourly that we were having to, you know, research and dive into more and different guidelines. I think that most of the dust is settled um, at the CDC level um, and at the CMS level. There still is, are a lot of changes, um, I think, at the state level because it really just depends on the state that you're operating in and where the state is as a whole in terms of what they're allowing um, and how they're, whether they're requiring mandatory testing for admission to an ASC or, um, or if they're, depending on how locked down they are as a, as a state. So you still have to obviously really constantly refer to your state and local authorities for the latest and the greatest. I think the one thing that we're seeing at more at a um, overall universe, you know, federal level is that CMS has instituted focused COVID surveys. Um, we've been getting feedback from many clients that they have been, um, they've experienced these new surveys. The surveyors are using a new guideline. It's actually COVID focused infection control surveys for acute and continuing care. They acknowledge that not all of it is going to apply to ASCs, but certainly the portion that does apply to ASCs, they're using this tool. There's obviously a big focus on hand hygiene, on personal protective equipment, um, a big focus. Uh, they interview staff. They definitely do a case tracer um, following a patient through the entire admission to discharge process. Um, and they're very focused on per policies and procedures um, that you've developed post-COVID, all about screening your staff, screening your patients, screening everyone who enters the facility, obviously universal masking, spatial distancing. Um, if you're doing any aerosol generating procedures, there's a big focus on the way that you're managing those potential exposures and the use of the N95 masks. 
And I think one of the big, big takeaways from all the people that we've talked to that have been thrown is documentation is going to save the day as usual. So not only having these policies and procedures, the checklists and implementing everything consistently, but making sure that you've got the meeting minutes and the um, documentation to show that from a governing body and a governance perspective, that your governing body has been engaged and is providing oversight and approval on all of these changes. I think the most important thing to do is reach out to your local health department. Um, for us, that was a lifesaver. In the beginning, before we even started, as they developed their uh, protocols, we said we're going to implement Metro Health, which is you know, city of San Antonio, um, the uh, Texas Medical Board, and the CDC. So we took all three protocols and we came up with one plan. And it's been good for us in the sense that it's given us a sound set of guidelines that you know, if one supersedes the other, you go to the next. And we deal with every situation from that perspective. And it really makes it easy to manage your employees, your staff, your patients. When they come in and they don't want to wear masks, because we still have that to this day, you know, we're pretty easy to say, you know, Texas Medical Medical Board says that as a physician, we have to wear masks. Can you please do that for us? Because that's what they require us to do. One of the things I found is people love pearls that they can implement. That was one I'm thinking about implementing already. Regina, give our viewers some pearls that they can actually take home and implement possibly tomorrow even. Well, um, we, we work primarily with physician-owned and independent surgery centers. So a lot of our surgery centers are one or two OR centers. Um, and one of the things that we've um, been we've found has been very helpful is implementing some form of patient engagement software that these centers hadn't previously um, invested in. And you know, it's really streamlined the pre-operative and assisted, it's really enhanced and facilitated the pre-op screening process. Um, and um, allowed us to have better and more consistent documentation pre-arrival. Um, and obviously cut down on the amount of time that we're having to spend vis-a-vis -vis with the patient after they get to the facility. Well, I would share with you that, you know, in my perspective, in working in our practice or clinic and with the social distancing as well as in our surgery center, that what we've actually found and realized is that we're more efficient with some of the protocols in place. And so in limiting how many family members can come in, who can assist, okay. when they assist, we're able to notify and see visually, you know, how many people do we have in the waiting room? How many people need to go to the back? How many people are you know, ready for surgery? In our perspective, we've actually considered that after the pandemic, post-pandemic, that when we go back to full speed, we remain where we are right now and we keep the same protocols, not having five family members and two grandchildren with them. So it's been a lot of efficiency for us. A lot of practices comment to me that the same similar experience that they feel like they're given a better customer service experience mm -hmm. without three hanger honors being there all the time. Todd, what have y'all noticed at CVP? Yeah, at our regional facility where we have seven ORs, um, we've experienced the same thing. I mean, our waiting room is, you know, is not right size to be able to social distance. Um, so what we did was we made the decision that both Regina and, and Albert have made, and that is uh, that our family members, uh, once they come in and sign their companion policy, uh, they go back, back out to their car. 
we created a, an area uh, kind of close to our, our post-op discharge area that we've sort of fenced in and, and you know, set it off from the rest of the, the staff parking area. And I've hired an attendant to work out there. Uh, they check mm -hmm. the family member in when they, when they come back there. Um, they have coffee and tea and water and they go around and check on you know, everybody in their car. Uh, we bought a bunch of, of Adirondack chairs and just kind of threw them out in the, the shady area where people can kind of get out of their cars and go to that area. Um, so it's, it's created a different experience than what we've been used to, um, but you're, you guys are absolutely right. You're spot on. It really changes the internal workflow of the surgery center when you're taking those five family members out of the building and moving them into somewhere else. Yeah, one of, one of the things we implemented is buying compounded dilation drops. You can get them from OSRX and Impermis. That's one of our pearls where we're selling them with like a compounded antibiotic steroid combination drop with our standard cataracts. We're giving it away for free with our laser upgrade cataracts. And the patients arrive fully dilated. They're asked to put a drop in 30 minutes before leaving their house and one right before leaving their house. And it dramatically decreases the nursing touches and improves the flow because we don't have people waiting for the femtosecond laser for them because they're slow dilators. So that's been a great throughput for us. Uh, the limited family has really helped us out. Uh, having nasal cannulas on everybody instead of the oxygen tube, uh, obviously due to sterility issues, uh, but the flow of oxygen, being able to keep the patients masked all the time with that. Just a couple of the pearls that we've done that have worked well in our surgery centers as well. Let's move on. Uh, staff members testing positive. Who wants to take that one on? How to handle that? How long to quarantine them? How many tests to do? All of that sort of good stuff. Dr. Loden, I can jump in on that. Take it away, Albert. All right. Well, I think that that's probably the most critical and key component of any clinic and surgery center is that making sure you have a sound policy. The biggest thing that we did was go back to Metro Health and we went to the Metro Health guidelines. And so they'll tell us that if you have a case, and in the beginning, what we did on every case is we called Metro Health and said, we got this situation. What do you want us to do? And afterwards, we've kind of figured out that there's a pretty, you know, set policy as to how Metro Health will consider somebody COVID, COVID positive and if you're high risk. If you're considered medium risk or low risk, Metro Health Department and the contact tracers don't even reach out. It's only the high risk cases where you're out and exposed and nobody has a mask on. And so what we do is if you don't have symptoms, you come to work, you don't have fever, fever then you're fine to come back to work. If you're a tertiary, you know, experience because we have had family members well my sister's daughter you know tested positive and they came over to the house and how do we handle that and so we're, it's kind of tertiary to our employee if they weren't really exposed and they live with that person so we say you know let's monitor your symptoms and if you have something that comes up or you feel that you need to get tested then let's get tested but what we've also done is we said it's not up to us as the owners of the practice it's not up to the managers it's up to you as the individual to decide when you need to be tested and if you need to talk to your doctor. I think that is critical because it protects you as an employer. 
to say that you're not saying you got to go get tested before you come back to work. If you force somebody to get tested, you can come into a lot of legal liability in the sense that you're trying to be their doctor. And as the administrator or CEO or manager, you're not really a doctor. The other thing that we've done is when it comes to holidays is we've educated people, um, our employees primarily, and for them to educate their families is that, you know, we know you want to spend time with your family, your you know, sisters and brothers and uncles and cousins and grandparents, parents, but let's also be safe. And so every holiday, the Friday before, we send out an email saying, here's where we are guys with, you know, COVID positive uh, tests in our company. There's not very many, but let's be smart and let's make sure that we social distance, we keep our masks on, we do what we're supposed to and be right. So Todd, you're big enough in your company that you have an entire manager dedicated to this for CVP, correct? So, you know, we've, we've used our infection control department uh, to kind of help navigate a lot of the decisions that we make. Uh, we also have a compliance officer for all of CVP uh, that's been, you know, sort of on the front lines of this, not just looking at it from the surgery center standpoint, but the clinic and administration standpoint as well, yes. Regina, what have you seen nationwide? You're, you're in multiple states, multiple countries. Uh, <laughs> well, do you uh, see any variation in that? Or is everybody pretty much doing it right, doing it the same way with the employees? Or is, is there a lot of leeway? I, no, I, 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 and I think that's a really sound approach, Albert, for those kind of potential at home, you know, extended family exposures. I mean, I assume if you have someone that that gets that shows up at work and develops a fever, you know, you send them home immediately, and those people you're testing before they come back, right? If they That's develop correct. symptoms. Yeah. So if they develop symptoms, um, it's actually afebrol for 72 hours, and if they decide to go get tested by their doctor, it's 14 days from the time they're tested. That's okay. our policy. Even though CDC says 10 days, we're 14 days. Okay, so but you don't up, you don't mandate if they become symptomatic that they get tested. It's you basically still leave that up to them too. We do. And so if they get, if they go out with symptoms and their symptoms resolve and they're like, I'm good, I'm coming back to work. You're you're cool with that. Seventy two hours a febrile. Okay. okay. And so if you think about what's out recently, it says that it, you know the first symptom of COVID is fever. Right. I think the biggest thing is just everybody in the office wearing the mask, right? Uh, if everybody's keeping their mask on all the time, that transmission rate really remarkably goes down. Uh, that's, that's something we've tried to just really pound. I know we're close to our halfway mark right now. And uh, again, I'd like to thank Johnson Johnson Vision for sponsoring us tonight. Uh, without industry support, so much of what we do can't go on. So we want to really thank them for this time tonight uh, on ret sponsoring return to the ASC. The first topic on our part two is utilization of products like Omidria, Dexacute to optimize outcomes, compounding anything to prevent complications, reduce pharmacy visits, uh, I know there's a whole lot of different perspectives on this. So Todd, you've got the most doctors. Uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about different products that are being used with CVP and 
how you integrate that with so many different perspectives. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, one of the things that we've been, we're working on, um, we, we're continuing to sort of work through the testing and, and uh, develop guidelines for is um, we have our own internal compounding pharmacy. So we've been, you know, working with our pharmacists and, and that group to develop a post-op slurry that we can, that we can dispense and use for uh, post-op medications uh, to try to reduce uh, the amount of post-op drops that patients have to deal with and work through um, for cataract surgery. So that's something that we actually started before the pandemic um, and we expect to be able to have that available uh, for our cataract patients probably within the next uh, three to four weeks. And we think that'll be a real benefit. Albert, what do you see with your docs? Yeah, so I think it's a little bit different on our perspective. We've looked at the dropperettes to dilate our patients and to help with efficiency. Um, but for the most part, we're pretty, I guess, conservative when it comes to executing new medications or pharmaceuticals at this point in time. And the primary reason for that is that we're just back to work. And so if you look at the OOS numbers, you got about 100% of ASCs are open at this time. 85% of those ASCs expect to be above or beyond where they should be for the year by 1231. And you have 45% of those facilities who've already exceeded those benchmarks and they're doing better than they were pre-COVID. We don't wanna make things any more complicated than they already are because we don't know where it's gonna go. So our perspective is Amidria, DexaQ, we already use combo drops. These things are all gonna be beneficial to patients, but we don't wanna make our process any more complicated at the time. Let's go ahead and continue to do what works. Let's be you know, successful and efficient and take care of our patients. And when the time comes, we can look at Amidria and DexaQ and all these other items that are available or products that are available that can help, you know, you know, make the post-operative recovery even better. Um, it's just a little bit more conservative from our perspective that, you know, it's not worth the risk given it's uncertain times. Regina, what are you seeing across That's the country? Uh, more, I think our clients are more fall into that camp. Um, not, I, I think really just more from the perspective of you know, integrating and assimilating all the change that's come our way in the last three months or four months, um, <coughs> excuse me, has taken a lot of energy and a lot of focus and a lot of time. And um, everyone is still, I think at this point, most of our clients are still focused on just trying to um, reestablish normalcy um, per the sort of pre-COVID experience, not that it necessarily has to look exactly like that, but just that we sort of get to that comfort level and to that level of um, efficiency in our operation. Um, and then I think once people get comfortable at that new normal, then we can sort of adjust our sites and start looking at other opportunities um, other ways that we can improve our operation and, and improve our efficiency and improve the patient experience and, you know, consider new technology and new pharmaceuticals. I mean, I would say that more than not, that's sort of where, where I see most of our clients. I'm kind of at a point personally where I just want to hit a whole lot of bunts and base hits and walk on base, you know, 
Uh, it's not a time where I really feel like I want to be an innovator, which is my personality, is to want to go out and try new things. I, I really am kind of with you, the consensus here that I think it's a tough time to sit there and try new things and that maybe something the industry wants to think about when rolling out new products. It may just not be the time. All of us want to just sit there and hit a whole bunch of base hits all day long, uh, yeah. every day. And right. we just want to get through the year, right? Yeah, we're yeah. just yeah. getting through the year. And I think all of us are worried <laughs> about, are we going to be allowed by our city or state governments to get through the year, right? Right. I mean, what happens? That's the big unknown. So I think all of us are like, it's like me. I added cataract surgery on Friday. We were booked out a couple of weeks. We said, hey, man, we need to add some cataracts here. We got a day. I'm not in LASIK this Friday. Let's put another 14 cataracts on Friday morning. Just get them knocked out while we can. We don't want to book out right now, right? You just right. want to get as much done as fast as you can get done and build some revenue in these facilities and build up cash flow and build up your cash reserves in case something happens again. I think all of us are in that uh, same boat here. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think any of us feel like this is behind us. You know, I think there's still a sense that we're, we're smack dab in the middle of it. So do you see anybody thinking about simultaneous bilateral surgery to reduce touches? What are y'all's thoughts on bilateral surgery at this juncture? In my perspective, if you have the right patient, yeah, that might work. But if you have the patients that are, you know, 250 pounds, diabetic, high blood pressure, and, you know, they want both eyes done and they're dense cataracts, you probably don't want to do that because if you have one eye go bad, it's not going to be fun. Todd, I know some of your surgeons personally very closely. And uh, what are y'all's thoughts? Um. We're, you know, I think it's something that, you know, would be really interesting to explore down the road at this point, you know, back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier with different medications and things like that. We're just trying to, to survive and get through the year. So we're really not looking to do any, you know, any advancements like that. You know, I, I think a lot of people have gone to the virtual one day post-op too. Uh, to reduce number of touches, number of travels. And, and the practices, one of my practices does that. We do a one-day phone call, uh, obviously with people getting mixed procedures or transplants or anything complicated, superficial keratectomies at the time of cataract surgery, we bring them back in for the day one. But just a routine standard cataract surgery, a uh, simple phone call telehealth visit in our rural communities does great. Albert, you all did a lot with telehealth that you're gonna to continue to do too, right? We have, it wasn't necessarily a lot, but what we've actually used it for is, um, we have a report that comes out every Monday and it's the COVID cancellations. And so we use the telehealth to reach out to those patients to review their chart, talk to the patient, and also bring them back in. We have a lot of really sick patients, demographics of San Antonio, that's kind of what we have to deal with. So we used it as an opportunity for those patients who were too scared to come back to the office to actually talk to them, consult with them, and then also make a determination if, and educate the patient if they really had to come back and we needed to see them, whether it be for an injection or you know, a surgery or something else, we would use that opportunity to say, well, you know, you had this scheduled, 
and we you know kind of move you off the schedule but it really is important for your eye health that you do come back so we use it as an educational purpose but it wasn't necessarily to generate more revenue or to make up revenue our clinics were already busy we were like 110 percent with no no-shows on our first day it was absolutely absurd as to how many patients wanted to come back to our office and there was no fear in coming back to the office. And we still kind of experience that. Our no-show rates are relatively low. You, you know, Albert, to your point, uh, you know, about ramping back up, one of the things that we ran into when we were when we were opening back up and ramping back up was that, you know, the primary care providers uh, weren't back in the offices yet. They So we had patients that we were struggling to get histories and physicals on. So that was a real opportunity for us to expand our, our history and physical clinic um, and hire an additional nurse practitioner uh, to allow us to, to get through that pipeline of histories and physicals. Um, you know, we had over 1,600 cases that were canceled during that March to, to May timeframe. And so getting them back on the schedule as well as, as uh, taking care of patients that were coming in uh, new and looking to get on the schedule really was a challenge for us. So that nurse practitioner role was was vital in, in allowing us to, to ramp back up. We're and Dr. Down, Lurden, well, you're still doing a lot of LASIK too, right? Our LASIK practice is doing extremely well. Um, mm -hmm. For numbers perspective, last August, uh, I've had my August numbers, but July, I think, July of last year, we were only about 88 eyes of paying LASIK uh, we hit over 170 eyes, and the interesting thing wow. is we did that with all digital and no radio, no TV marketing. Uh, oh, nice. So that may be a new wow. frontier that you can do the same volume without a lot of external marketing if you're very well placed digitally with your online reviews and you have your SEO and SEM optimized very well. Uh, it's been a revelation to us that we could grow our LASIK business without this external marketing. We uh, cut our radio, we cut our TV, and we cut our billboards off, and we saw our business grow. So it's a very interesting wow. phenomenon, but great for the pocketbook, is I think Albert, <laughs> CEO of practice, would be like, wow, this is great stuff, right? Yeah, it's a fabulous. <laughs> wow. We're down to about 10 minutes left. If anybody has any questions right now, please uh, send them in to us and we'll try to hit on uh, a few more questions here uh, as, as we wind up today. Regina, any more pearls for us? Uh, just kind of a wrap up here for us. Oh, I, I think the biggest one is just the communication with the staff. I think, you know, I had conversations with um, with Albert very early on and that was one of the things that they, they made their decision to shut down suddenly and um, and completely, and he shared a lot with me about how they approached it in terms of internal communications with all their providers and the employees, and you know, with so much um, of what could be just sort of you know monumental upheaval and sort of you know just so much change um, that everyone's going through, not just in the workplace but personally too. I think that you can't over communicate with your staff. Um, through this whole thing. I think that's been one of the most critical factors for being able to be successful. Regina, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, during the entire shutdown, 
every two weeks, we had a town hall Zoom call for each one of our facilities where we gave an update on what was going on. We talked about, you know, sort of, uh, you know, answered any unemployment questions or, uh, you know, talked about those kinds of things. We just listened and we gave the, uh, the staff an opportunity every two weeks through the pandemic to, you know, have an ear and have an opportunity to voice concerns and talk about things. And, and we've got a lot of positive feedback afterwards about how much staff valued that opportunity. Yeah, I bet. Well, I want to thank everybody. We're down to our one minute mark here. So I don't want to be a preacher and going too late. Uh, that makes everybody unhappy. So we're going to wind it up. I want to again, thank J&J Vision. Thank Regina, Todd, Albert, Elizabeth, Jared, everybody that helped put this on and folks at Burnmouth Communications. Great time, everybody. Y'all did such a great job and helped us out through this uh, reopening of our ASCs and look forward to getting back together with some meetings uh, sometime hopefully in the future. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Thank Dr. You. Loden. Return to the ASC has been made possible with support from Johnson & Johnson Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsor for their support of this programming.